Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Welcome to Livewire. This week, we are going to cut the crap once and for all with professional declutterers, the minimalists. Minimalism is the thing that gets us past the things so we can make room for life's most important things, which actually aren't things at all. New Yorker writer Ariel Levy. If you're going to have a pseudo-open marriage and you're going to encourage your kid to be a writer, I mean, you do the math. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know. Yeah. And actor, storyteller, and writer Stephen Tobolowsky. And I come back to America and my doctor tells me I have a fatal injury, which is very depressing when you're alive. We are happy to say Stephen remains very much alive and will delight you this hour. So without further ado, let's get it started by heading over to the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We have got a really interesting show for you this hour. Our theme is Cut the Crap. Which I know is a little direct for public radio. (laughs) We should have gone with a more public radio version, like, um, we're feeling some heightened sensitivity to crap. (laughs) So if you could lower the amount you're creating, that would make this feel like a safer space for us. (laughs) We did not go with that. We went with cut the crap. Um, And there's a... A lot of things that that phrase can apply to could apply to actually reducing some of the physical possessions you have, things you may not need. We're going to talk to some folks about that this hour. could also be unburdening yourself of emotional connections that are not serving you well in your life. I'm going to talk to somebody else about that. It could also be a way of describing a person who is kind of blunt and direct, kind of gets to the point, you know, they really cut the crap If we're using it in that sense, nobody cuts the crap like my mom, Susan Burbank. (laughs) Like, she is a warm and loving person, but if she has something on her mind, she is almost physically compelled to get right down to the point. She's not about the chit-chat. I'll give you an example. Last Saturday, I was on a jog, and my phone was with me, my cell phone, started ringing, I saw it was my mom. And you know how sometimes you have that like weird spidey sense, like something is up, I should take this. So I answered the phone. I didn't stop jogging, by the way. I love my mom, but daddy's got to get his steps in on that Fitbit. So I kept, I kept kind of jogging along. My mom said, uh, hey, it's uh, mom. And she could hear me kind of gasping for air. So I said, are you on a jog right now? I said, yeah. She goes, well, that's okay, because this will only take a few seconds. It's like, okay, what's up? And she said, I'm listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me right now. <laughs> and when she said that, I, I kind of slowed my jog into kind of like a fast walk. I kind of got a little smile on my face because I realized, you know, uh, I work on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I'm one of the panelists. And on this very Saturday, my mom was calling me and listening to the show. It was one of the shows that I was actually on. So I knew that she actually was taking time out of her day to call me to say, like, hey, I'm proud of you, son. So I was like, right on. So I said, "Uh, yeah, you're listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. She goes, "Uh, yeah. And uh, I was just thinking, that Paula Poundstone is a riot. (laughs) 
Is she like that in real life? You just tell me quick and then you can finish your jog. This was an actual conversation I had with my mom a few days ago. And then I did a very public radio thing. I said, ah, the connection is breaking up, Mom. I think I have to go. And I totally just hung up on her unceremoniously. I, I want to mention this uh, just to sort of reaffirm with all of you that this is the person who raised me, okay? She taught me everything I know. So if at some point throughout this show, if I'm weirdly blunt with any of the guests, if I lack tact if I can't read the room, or if I just start randomly singing the praises of Paula Poundstone, it's not my fault. It is literally in my DNA. So I just want to put that disclaimer out right at the top of the show. Should we get your first guest out here? All right. Our first guests have taken cutting the crap to an entirely different level. Through their podcast and books and blog, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, better known as the Minimalists, have preached the gospel of decluttering to millions. And they're not just talking about physical stuff. They also talk about the emotional junk that so many of us are carrying around. And it's knowledge that's hard won from their own lives, as we're about to learn. Please welcome the Minimalists to Livewire. Joshua and Ryan, welcome to Livewire. Hey, thanks, thanks for, having, for us. having us. If you have a one or two sentence description of what the minimalist ethos is about, Joshua, what would that be? Minimalism is the thing that gets us past the things so we can make room for life's most important things, which actually aren't things at all. What did your life look like back in around 2011, kind of before things started to change for you? I was sort of living the American dream. It was after actually growing up poor in Dayton, Ohio. I was raised by an alcoholic single mother. We were on food stamps and, and government assistance. And I thought the reason we were so unhappy is because we didn't have a lot of money, right? And so when I turned 18, I went out and got a corporate job. And I spent the next decade climbing the corporate ladder. And, and really by age 27, 28, I had achieved everything I ever wanted. That six-figure salary, the, the luxury cars, the closets full of designer clothes, the big suburban house with more toilets than people. But, but then my mom died and my marriage ended, both in the same month. And th those two events forced me to sort of look around and, and start to question what had become my life's focus. And what I realized is I was so focused on so-called success and achievement and especially on the accumulation of stuff. And, and I realized that, yeah, I might have been living the American dream, but it wasn't my dream. And, and it sort of, for me, it took every, getting everything I thought I wanted to realize that maybe everything I ever wanted wasn't actually what I wanted at all. And that, that's really when I discovered this thing called minimalism. And so then, Ryan, uh, how did you start to notice that something was different with your old pal Joshua? Well, uh, we, we were working at the same corporation, side by side, climbing the corporate ladder together throughout our 20s. And I remember um, when he split up uh, with, his, with his wife, um, I was helping him move into his new place. And there was like this really awesome like wall mount that was already there for a TV. And I'm like, dude, uh, what kind of TV are you going to get? And he was like, you know, you know, I don't know. I don't know if, I'm, I don't know if I am going to get a TV. And I was like, 
what? Like, I, okay. He's like, yeah, maybe. A couple months go by. No TV still. And I, I noticed Josh being uh, happier. He was, he was nicer. He was, you know, he seemed a little, a little freer. And um, eventually I, I sat him down and I'm like, dude, why the hell are you so happy? What is going on with you? And I thought, like, maybe the, you know, doctor gave him some good drugs or something. And I was like, you know, I wanted some. I'm like, is it Prozac? Like, where are you on, man? And he was like, no, it's, it's not like that at all. He, he spent, like, 20 minutes telling me about this thing called minimalism. He talked about how he spent the last several months of his life just simplifying, getting the clutter out of the way. And then it started to make sense a little bit. I'm like, all right, dude, I want to do this. I want to be a minimalist. Now what do I do? Well, that's, I think that's the question a lot of people probably have. We're talking to Ryan Nicodemus and Joshua Fields Milburn, uh, also known as the Minimalists. What were the first thing, Ryan, like what did you get rid of first? So we, we came up with a, a crazy idea called a packing party where we decided to pack all my belongings as if I were moving, and then I would unpack only the items I needed over the next few weeks. So Josh came over, literally helped me box up everything, my clothes, my kitchenware, even my furniture, everything. We literally pretended like I was moving. And then I spent the next 21 days unpacking only the items I needed, my, my toothbrush, some kitchenware. I feel like you could have left the toothbrush out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, no matter how minimal you are, even just for the sake of the people who love you, yeah, yeah. I don't think we're minimizing away from well, dental you know, hygiene. You know, for me, for me I, I, really, uh, I really have to do something drastic to change my state. <laughs> gotcha. And uh, the more I can change my state, the more um, it will actually have an impact on my life. So, you know, I went through this whole process, and after those three weeks, I had 80% of my stuff still sitting in those boxes, like just sitting there unaccessed. And... You know, I, I looked at those, I couldn't even, you know, I looked at those boxes, I couldn't even remember what was in half of them. And I, I was thinking to myself, like, this is a pretty cool experiment. So we did what any two 30-year-old dudes would do. We started a blog. Yes. Yeah. The first <laughs> blog in the history of the internet. Yes. Wait, no, it's not that. Wait, we, gotta, we do have to take a very quick break. We have the minimalists here. We have Ryan Nicodemus and Joshua Fields Milburn. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We will be back in just a moment. Hey, it's Luke. And I just wanted to remind you, it is the Livewire Spring Membership Drive. And here is what we're trying to do. We are trying to raise $10,000 before June 4th. And you, the dear listener who is listening to my voice, even at this very moment, you are a hugely important part of making Livewire happen. This is because we are an independently produced radio show. Uh, we don't work for any big network. We don't work for any big individual station. We just kind of make this thing happen through the nonprofit organization that we are, as I like to say, emphasis on the not making a profit part. So what we do is we ask you, the Livewire listeners, uh, the people who enjoy the show, the people who are happy that this kind of stuff is getting made, uh, to join me and the whole Livewire staff in supporting the show. Uh, this is how you can help out. If you would go to livewireradio.org, or you can also just click on a link in the description on this podcast. If you were to go to one of those places and if you were to say, hey, Luke, how about I kick you 10 bucks a month over there at Livewire? It's a relatively small amount of money on a monthly basis, but man, does it ever help us if enough people do that. We will thank you by sending you a limited edition Livewire tote bag designed by Portland graphic artist Olivia Storm and some other cool stuff. This is if you donate by June the 4th, again, by going to livewireradio.org or clicking on the link that is in the description under this podcast. 
We could not do this show without you. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. My name's Luke Burbank. I'm here talking to the minimalists. Our theme this week is Cut the Crap, which is something that is kind of their specialty through their uh, podcast and blog and a documentary film uh, that, uh, that they made about really trying to focus on the important things in life. What's the science behind why more stuff doesn't make us more happy? What, did you know the average American household has more than 300,000 items in it? 300,000! Does but that it, include dust mites? <laughs> I think most of us aren't hoarders, right? We're not candidates for the TV show, but we just hold on to a lot of stuff. And I think the reason being is we hold on to all of these things just in case. The three most dangerous words in the English language. And so I really think it comes down to we hold on to these things because we feel like that's what we're supposed to do or we're going to need these things someday in some non-existent hypothetical future. That's the first side. The other side is a bit more pernicious, and it is we buy a bunch of things with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Well, when you say it that way, it doesn't seem like such a great plan. Um, if I went into, uh, Ryan, if I went into your house, um, what would I see? Like, what's in there? What does a, a minimalist's house actually look like? You know, at the end of the day, like, if you were to walk into me and my partner's home, like, you wouldn't jump up and say, oh, my God, there, there must be minimalists that live here. <laughs> you, you'd probably be like, man, whoever lives here, they're pretty tidy. <laughs> and, and it's because, you know, everything I own, it serves a purpose or, or it, it adds value to my life. It, it brings me joy. And uh, at the end of the day, everything else I've gotten rid of. And when you do that, there's these beautiful side effects, like you've got a nice, tidy home. Now, I don't want people to confuse a simple life with an easy life, because I'll tell you, man, simple is not always necessarily easy. Well, yeah, because I was watching the documentary that, that you guys are a part of. I was listening to the podcast this week. You have books that are out. You're on this tour have you been so successful that your lives are not able to be as focused on the stuff that you started out wanting to focus on? I think the difference now is my short-term actions align with my long-term values. It's not necessarily about being happier. In fact, I think being or chasing happiness was really the problem for me. I was constantly chasing this thing called happiness, but now I'm living a more meaningful life, and the beautiful thing about that is happiness is, is a byproduct of that. Uh, that is Joshua Fields Milburn. He's here with Ryan Nicodemus, and they are the minimalists, everybody, here on Livewire Radio. All right, Joshua and Ryan, you teach people how to make space in their lives for the things that really matter. But the two of you don't always agree on what is and isn't a keeper, right, when it comes to physical stuff. So we thought that we would savagely pit you two against each other <laughs> to weigh in on some real-life items from our lives as a radio show staff. So what we're going to do is we're going to show you some things that are real objects that we own, and then one of you is going to make the argument for keeping it, and one of you is going to make the argument for getting rid of it, it's a little segment we're calling, Should It Stay or Should It Go Now? <laughs> All 
All right, so I'm going to kick things off, and uh, this it. is a slightly visual for the radio, but I will describe <laughs> it for the people out there uh, listening to us and not able to see what we're doing. I hold in my hand a very gaudy gold Reebok pump basketball shoe. <laughs> hey, Luke, 1985 called. They want their shoes back. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> you haven't even learned if you're supposed to be arguing for or against this, Ryan. So slow your roll. Is this your shoe? This is my shoe. I brought this shoe from my house. I have both of them, by the way. Now, let me tell you the story briefly behind my acquisition of this Reebok pump basketball shoe. When I was a kid and the Reebok pump came out, it was like $200, which I think was about 50% of what my dad made per month. So there would be no Reebok pumping in the Burbank household. And then when I grew up, one time I went into Fred Siegel in Los Angeles about 10 years ago, and what did I see? A Reebok pump basketball shoe that I could afford. I mean, that's, let's be honest, debatable if it was a good financial decision. But I was able to acquire this thing that I had wanted as a child, and it, was, it meant something to me about what my adult life had come to, I guess, or had added up to. I will also mention I have never worn these shoes outside of the house because they are ridiculous looking. Should it stay or should it go now? Joshua, argue for why it should go. I mean, you've already, you've already made the argument for why they should go, right? I, I've never worn them. It sounds to me like you essentially get no value from them. Well, sometimes I look at them and I realize I'm not as poor as I was when I was a kid. Is that value? Do you require a sneaker to realize that? You have clearly not met me, Joshua. <laughs> what I would encourage you to do, if, if you did want to get rid of you said, this is not adding any value to my life. It's just getting in the way. It's taking up space. It's weighing on my mind. First, getting rid of it's going to take that weight off your shoulders. But you're not going to experience lasting contentment just by getting rid of a pair of Reebok pumps. But if for some reason it's a sentimental item and you're like, I still want to get rid of it, you can take a picture of it. Because... The memories that we have aren't in our things. The memories are inside us. But sometimes the things we have can trigger those memories. So quite often before I get rid of something, I'll take a photo of it, and then I'll let it go. All right, Ryan, you have the task of explaining why I should hang on to this pair of Reebok pump basketball <laughs> shoes that I don't wear. Oh, man. Um, if you are someone who likes to take up uh, space for no reason... <laughs> If you are someone who uh, loves living in the past and can't live uh, in the present. <laughs> I don't feel like your heart's in this, Ryan. <laughs> uh, I think you should absolutely keep them in those cases. All right. Sold. I'll keep it. Listen, listen. I'm working my way up to where you guys are at, okay? Uh, we have The Minimalists here, and uh, next up we have our producer and uh, editor of our show, Laura Haddon, coming to the stage. <laughs> it is Laura Haddon, what is this thing you've brought on stage that you want to ask The Minimalists about? It's a towel warmer. A Brookstone towel warmer. I feel like it's kind of in the name, but will you explain how it works? Yeah, so before I get into the shower, I put my towel in it, and I press a button, and it warms it while I'm in the shower, <laughs> so that when I get out of the shower, it's at the perfect temperature. Okay. 
So now we turn to the minimalists. Uh, one of you has to make the argument for why this thing should stay and one why it should go. Ryan, would you like to make the argument as to why this should go? Um, when's the last time you used it? Uh, this morning. Okay. okay. Oh, uh, checkmate. No, no, no. Um, I don't, you know, I might get rid of that just because it's an electrical device like close to the bathtub and stuff. Maybe it's a safety hazard. So you might want to consider getting rid of it for that reason. Safety. Safety, <laughs> safety first. Safety first, okay. yes. Uh, Joshua, uh, what, what argument could be made for, for keeping a uh, Brookstone brand a towel warmer? I mean, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Have you ever had a warm towel when you got out of the shower? It's uh, freaking no. amazing. I spend all my money on Reebok <laughs> pumps. <laughs> Here, here's what I'll say. If you use that every day and you get immense value from it, you shouldn't get rid of it. I don't know why you would even question that. And, and Actually, that's not true. I encourage you to question it, and it's good, because now you're making the, de- the, the deliberate decision to hold on to that, and you're going to get more value from it because you know you're using it intentionally. All right. Compelling argument from Joshua. I have a sense that Laura's going to hold on to that bad boy. All right. And last but not least, we have our announcer, Jason Rouse, who has an item that he's been holding on to for uh, a long time. It's, it's, again, I'm just going to try to describe this for folks listening on the radio. It's sort of like a three-foot-tall Michael Myers from Halloween (laughs) ventriloquism (laughs) dummy. Um, Jason, uh, this was made for a play that you were in. Yeah. And it, it is actually, it's a, a likeness of a friend of yours. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pretty close. Yeah, he wore this same outfit in the show, and, and we, uh, the joke was that he was cloned, and this was the clone, and everyone thought that this was the, the real Tony. I see. drove real Tony insane. All right, uh, minimalists, time to weigh in on Jason Rouse's... Michael Myers-esque, three-foot-tall ventriloquism dummy, which I should mention is wearing a hoodie for some reason. Okay, Joshua Fields-Milburn, what is the argument for getting rid of this? Do you want to keep it, sort of? I do. It was made by a good friend. It's a representation of a very close friend who doesn't live here, but, you know, it's a weird puppet of my friend, so... (laughs) First off, it's not your friend. Let, let, we'll be clear about this. Uh, but yeah. would it help if I turned his, his gaze away from you? Maybe? That's, so <laughs> That's a good point. That's not the kind of doll you throw out because it's coming back for you. <laughs> yeah, right. If I've learned anything from horror films, <laughs> yeah. There's an entire Chucky series predicated yes, on, yeah, on this exact same thing. Let's just get this thing off the stage by moving it to you, Ryan. What is the argument for keeping this nightmare? Look look how adorable that puppet is. (laughs) Um, I would just go with Luke's argument of if you throw that thing away, it's probably going to come back and haunt you. So don't do it. Stay safe. Very good. All right. Sage advice from Ryan Nicodemus and Joshua Fields Milburn. They are the minimalists. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities. 
even to tropical unalaskan lands like costa rica and hawaii and with a name like alaska you know their air conditioning will be on point alaska airlines fly nice this is live wire radio from pri our next guest's fascinating new memoir cuts right to the heart of a number of sometimes taboo topics lust gender alcoholism and as she put it in an interview with Charlie Rose, women as human animals. The book is called The Rules Do Not Apply, and I have to tell you, I have not stopped thinking about it since I read it recently. Please welcome Ariel Levy to Livewire. Ariel, welcome to LiveWire. Thanks so much. What did you mean by that phrase, women as human animals, exactly, when you were talking to Charlie Rose? Well, one of the things I wrote about in my book is basically going into labor. Um, when I was 19 weeks pregnant and I was on assignment in Mongolia, um, and I was in my hotel room, and uh, I gave birth there, and for 10 minutes I was somebody's mother. And I write a lot about the explicit bloody detail of that experience. And the reason I did that was that I think that for half the human population, these experiences around menstruation, menopause, fertility, childbirth, pregnancy, all the things that are very primal and animal are really important shaping parts of our lives that don't make it into art and literature and conversation very much, even though they have a huge impact on the lives of women. Do you feel like talking about a birth in that way, is that something that is kind of one of the last taboos? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, it, like not that long ago, the idea that women were sexual seemed like, you know, worth talking about. And now it seems sort of quaint. <laughs> I mean, sort of like, yeah, we got that memo. But, the, but what happens... <laughs> Before and afterwards, um, I think, is still taboo. This uh, a book of yours, it, it covers a whole bunch of different things, but I feel like the, the aspect of loss yeah. seems to get a lot of attention. Um, uh, you, you went to Mongolia covering this story for The New Yorker. Yeah. You were, at the time, pregnant, and you were married, and by yeah. the time you came back, well, shortly thereafter, you weren't married either. So this yeah. was a huge change in your life. How did you actually get through that? It seems like either one of those events could be too much for someone to bear. You had both of them come down on you almost at once. Well, at first, I mean, I just thought it was unacceptable. I would wake up every morning and just think, no, this is not a good life. I don't accept these terms. Um, and I think that, you know, I had eventually no choice but to surrender and realize whether I accepted this was reality or not, it was. So I sort of had to just go for it and really, really lean into how horrible it was. And I think, you know, for a while I lived in a tunnel of grief. And then eventually, I think if you're lucky, at first grief is something you live in, and then eventually it lives in you, and you take it with you, and, and it doesn't define every moment of every day, but it reshapes who you are a little bit. Um, it seems like every interview that you do about this book, mm -hmm. somebody asks you the questions I just asked you about the miscarriage and about the end of your marriage and things like that. Do you ever have well, a Well, it's moment? my fault. I mean, I did write a book about it. Well, this is what I... <laughs> I'm not this... like it's none of your business. Right. 
Well, that's kind of the nature of, of my question is, do you, do you have days when you're talking to some random radio host, maybe even in Portland, where you're like, why did I write about the most painful things I've ever been through? I mean, uh, are there yes. days you don't want to talk about this? Yes, that happens. I mean, I, I know why I wrote about it. Um, why? Well, because that's what I've done with everything my whole life is write about whatever was going on since I was a little kid. And that has always been my coping mechanism for making sense of the world. And I've been writing about other people's lives for almost 20 years by the time I wrote this. Um, so it wasn't, I didn't really, there was, what else would I do? You know, that's what I do with everything is write about it. What about the other people in the book? Because it's one thing if you want to write about yourself, but you write about your ex-wife, you yeah. write about your mother. Uh, have you heard from them? Their oh, of take? course. Yeah. My mom, I wasn't worried about. She's my mom. And also... Yeah, but she, she had an extremely unorthodox approach to marriage, yes, it she would did. seem. Yes. She was married to your father. Yes. She also had a buddy who would come <laughs> visit you guys, and then she would sometimes go on trips with him. Yes. And if I read the, the book right, it wasn't an open marriage. And no. your dad was not jazzed about this. But I think that if my mom were here, she'd tell you, you know, this all started in the late 60s. People were doing all sorts of experiments with marriage and monogamy, you know? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like they were the only two people who thought, okay, let's, let's recook this souffle. Yeah. <laughs> the point is with my mom, she always said, you know, you can be a writer. That, and I, I always wanted to be since I was a little kid. And she was the person who was always like, well, of course that'll happen. Of course that's what's gonna happen if that's what you wanna do. And she really believed in me and she really encouraged me. So it's sort of like, if you're gonna have a, a pseudo open marriage and you're gonna encourage your kid to be a writer, I mean, you do the math. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, basically, like I said to my mom, like, it's like a bear encouraging the cub to go into fur trapping. 100%. And I basically felt like, you know, can we stop with the suspense? Like, you know I'm going to write about this eventually. Let me just get it done so we can digest our food in peace from now on. So my mom, I wasn't worried about. My former spouse, I was very concerned about, and I showed it to her. I mean, she was the first person to read the book before I turned it in, before I gave it to my editor or anything. And I said, if there's anything you can't live with, tell me and I'll take it out. And she's a really generous person, and she said, you know, this is your story. Tell it. I'm not going to censor you. Wow. Did you have her reaction in mind when you were actually writing the book? Like, as you're describing your experiences with her, are you also running it through the filter of, God, what is she going to say when she sees this? No. I mean, I don't think that... Like, I, I, I have enough practice writing after... All, after all years of doing it every day, that, that I know how to focus on that task, like what's in front of me and not think. I mean, as a journalist, you're very much forbidden from thinking about what the subject of your writing is going to say about it. You're really supposed to put the reader's interest first. So I'm used to doing that. But of course, emotionally and morally in this case, after I finished the writing process, I was like, I got to check it out and see if this person I really care about can live with this. And would you have really, after all the work you put in, would you, be, would you have been prepared to take out entire sections, if not eliminate her from the book as a character because of her not appreciating being written about? 
Well, I wouldn't have eliminated her from the book, but if she said this specific thing, I can't have it. For the first time in the history of my writing career, I would have said this human being's interests come above the readers. Yeah. Wow. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We're talking to Arielle Levy. Her new book is The Rules Do Not Apply. It's a fascinating memoir. You are a writer for The New Yorker. You've mm. written uh, amazing profiles of Thank different you. people. And I'm sure that as, as a journalist observing somebody that you're writing about, there is often a disconnect between how the person thinks of themselves and how they're really coming off or what their real actions are. When you're writing about yourself, mm -hmm. are you worried that you are not totally in touch with how you're really coming off or what you're really doing? Because you're not able to observe yourself from the outside. Right. I mean, I just did the best I could. I mean, what I thought was exciting about writing about something I had experienced was that when you're reporting, when you're doing a journalistic piece, you're piecing together the truth to the best of your ability from what people tell you. And maybe you're there for part of it. You know, you're witnessing some scenes. It was exciting to me to do a, to do a piece of writing where I was there for all of it. So it was a new challenge to try to tell the exact truth as specifically as I could, you know, to the extent that any of us aren't blinkered by our own perspective. The book is riveting and powerful and, and describes things in a way, in a vivid way that um, I had never read things that I read in your book. It, it was amazing, but also extremely intense, right? What have you learned on the other side of all of this? I mean, are you a different person as we sit here and talk? Um, or is that silly to assume that this stuff has to change? Is it sometimes it can just be bad stuff that happens, I guess, right? I think all sorts of bad stuff happens all the time. To me, the, the thing that has changed as a result of sort of losing all of this at once and having the rug pulled out from under me was that I realized I wasn't in control. I was sort of liberated from my illusion of control. I mean, I think that's a life's work to really realize how little you have control over and to surrender to that. But I think this book is a coming of age story, you know, not from being a kid to being an adult, but from being like a fake adult huh. to a more real adult who actually understands the limits of life and that I'm not in charge. I wouldn't be so silly as to say things happen for a reason because I actually don't really believe that. Things happen. Full stop. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I mean, they happen for like eight reasons. Yeah. Usually, you know what I mean? Like they happen for a bunch of reasons. Well, love reading you in the New Yorker. Thank this you. book is really amazing. Ariel Levy, everybody. Thanks. All right, we're going to make what some may look back on as a somewhat hard pivot from the, uh, the topic of your amazing memoir to something a little lighter. Ariel, you have profiled so many people, people like Nora Ephron, Silvio Berlusconi, tons of folks in between. And of course, when you write about these people, you're trying to portray them in a way that is interesting, but also accurate and factual. And so we're going to put you to the test on this. We're going to give you some unbelievable-sounding details about famous figures that would really spice up a New Yorker profile. Okay. If they were true. Okay. Some of them are, and some of them we have made up. Okay. We're calling this little experiment good facts or total crap.
I'm excited. This didn't happen on fresh air. No. Nope. <laughs> All right, Ariel. Some of these are good facts, and some of these are total crap. Is it a good fact or total crap that Elvis Presley was a natural blonde? That's total crap. That, my friend, is a good fact. Holy. It's 100% true. Yeah, sorry. Okay. All right. El Elvis Presley uh, was a blonde in his earlier films, and then he began dying at Jet Black in 1956. Wow. Yeah. You think you know somebody. Seriously. True fact or total crap? Fred Astaire invented a new form of dance shoe that is worn by the Rockettes to this very day. For fun, I'm going to say total crap. You're right. We made that up. That's total crap. Phew. Yeah, here's another one. Okay. Dr. Seuss wrote the best-selling children's book, Green Eggs and Ham, on a bet from his publisher that he couldn't write a book using only 50 words. Good fact or total crap? I'm going to buy it. I'm going to say it's a fact. You are absolutely right. That is a fact. <laughs> using only 50 words, green eggs and ham. I guess that kind of scans if you think about the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of yeah. repetition in there. Definitely. How about this? True fact or total crap? The Wright brothers kept a pet condor in their kitchen to inspire their airplane design with the width of its wings. I cannot buy that. I think that's fake news and total crap. I don't appreciate using the term fake news, but you are right. Well, there is that. That is totally made up. Okay. Okay, two more here. Okay, okay. Christopher Walken traveled with the circus at the age of 15 as a lion tamer. Ariel, true fact or total crap? Oh, my God. Tough one, right? That Walken seems capable of anything. This is the hardest decision I've ever had to make in my life. I'm really sorry that we were the ones who presented you with that. I don't see how I can resist saying maybe that's true. Absolutely true. <laughs> true fact, Christopher Walken was a lion tamer at age 15 with the circus. He would be. And last but not least, true fact or total crap, John Adams, yeah? second president of the United States, had a dog in the White House named Satan. Get out. No, I cannot believe that. You're wrong, my friend. <gasps> he had a dog named Satan that in the White House. awesome. True fact. Next assignment, write a profile of John Adams and his dog Satan, Satan? for the New Yorker. Woo! Ariel Levy, everybody. Livewire gets support from Fully. Fully has desks, chairs, and things that keep your body moving. You know, I'm sitting on one right this moment as I record this. That's right. I'm sitting on a TikTok, which is a rocking stool that keeps my body supported, but also engaged, meaning the blood flows to all of the places in my brain that it's supposed to, helps me stay creative, helps me stay uh, sort of connected to what I'm doing. If you've sat at an office job for hours on end and just kind of slumped down in your chair and felt the very will to live ebbing out of you, 
you've got to start using some of the amazing furniture products they make over at Fully. Their Jarvis Standing Desk has been reviewed as the best on the market, but of course, standing desks aren't just about standing. There is also some sitting involved, so they carry a whole line of chairs that promote healthier ways to sit. If you uh, want to find out more about Fully and Livewire and how it's going to change your life, head over to fully.com slash livewire. This is Livewire Radio. Our theme this hour is Cut the Crap. Our next guest often plays outrageous characters in film and TV, and yet somehow they all seem to make perfect sense, at least to themselves. Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day, Sammy Jenkins in Memento, Action Jack Barker on HBO's Silicon Valley. Stephen Tobolowski brings an essential humanity to these roles, maybe because that's also how he's walked through his real life much of which is detailed in his fabulous new book, My Adventures with God. Please welcome the inimitable Stephen Tobolowski back to Livewire. <laughs> Stephen, welcome back to Livewire. It is so good to be here, Luke. You are one of our very favorite guests. Um, you are not only... Uh, a, a, an actor uh, who has portrayed so many amazing roles, but you're a master storyteller, and, and this new book of yours is totally fascinating. It's really about uh, kind of your relationship with spirituality. Uh, you had a weird start to that, right? Growing up as a Jewish kid in Texas who celebrated Christmas, but only in a sort of way. There were only three Jewish families in Oak Cliff. There were, truthfully, there were more Nazis in Oak Cliff. Oh. No, seriously. Uh, when I played basketball in sixth grade, uh, John Rutledge, oh, I said his name. Uh, we, we went over to his house for pimento cheese and uh, Pepsi Cola afterwards, and we, we went in, and there was a bust of Adolf Hitler in their living room with two German flags on either side. And then in front of the fireplace, there were stormtrooper magazines uh, laid out kind of like they were highlights in a pediatrician's office. <laughs> and there was something... Uh, this may have been why your parents decided to downplay the Uish J ness of the Tobolowski family. Maybe. Yeah, it was, you know, I thought there was something kind of creepy, but also something refreshing. You know, that John didn't feel the need to tidy up after a Bund rally. You know, <laughs> you know it's just totally cool. But my parents, they, they said, well, they went with the Santa scenario. Uh, we were going to get presents on Christmas so we wouldn't be outcasts on the first show and tell when we got back to school. Uh, but my mother felt guilty that she was betraying her Jewish roots. And so she said, because we were Jewish, we were not allowed to have a Christmas tree, but we would have to get our presents under the dining room table. <laughs> uh, I remember I, I got the nerve to ask my mother the hard questions. Uh, I was about five, and I said, Mom, you know, we don't have a chimney. What's Santa going to do? And she said, well, he'll use the back door. Well, that was troubling. I thought it meant either mom was leaving the door unlocked over the holidays, which was unsafe. Especially or if you consider the Nazis that were about. <laughs> <laughs> or it meant Santa had our key, which was just creepy. 
And then I said, well, why? I don't understand about the dining room table. What? And it's such a lot of work for Santa to crawl under the dining room. It's a very busy night for him and to spend that time. And she said, Santa doesn't mind the hard work. He just doesn't want you to be different from other children. I said, different? Mom, no one gets their presents under the dining room table. <laughs> we have Stephen Tobolowski here, although I know that uh, your mom was, uh, was, was a great mom, and she was, she was quick with advice and sayings, but she had one of them very wrong that she, from Ben Franklin that she had, been, uh, yeah, well, she had deployed often in your childhood? Yes. Uh, well, you know, we didn't have philosophy in Oak Cliff. We didn't have Plato. <laughs> we didn't have Epicurus. But my mother would come up with these phrases all the time. I remember I was a child, and... Uh, she came by with a big stack of laundry, and she, I was watching cartoons, and she said, we should all be cats. And then she walked on. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't know if she meant that we should be cats because cats like to sleep on clean laundry, or we should all be cats because cats don't have to do laundry at all. Uh, but then she, she would turn to old favorites, old reliables when situations got, and what you're referring to, uh, is when my heart got broken uh, from a girl, when a girl would break my heart, which happened often in high school. And mom even used this in my 30s. And uh, she would turn to a quotation which she attributed to Ben Franklin. And she, she would sit on the bed with me and hold my hand and say very sweetly, she said, sweetheart, I know it hurts. Just remember what Ben Franklin said. All women are the same in the dark with a basket over their heads. That's not only wildly inappropriate now, I think it was pretty bad in the 70s. And, and, and she said it all the time. She said it at graduation, at Thanksgiving. I, I remember the end of the Ben Franklin quote came... Uh, and to tell you the truth, I don't know if Ben Franklin even said this, but I know mom had no idea what it was. It was, I was in my 50s and my brother brought over his two boys who had just gone to college, uh, Andrew and Mark, and they were sitting down at the table talking about tales of freshman heartbreak, and mom's putting out the brisket and she goes, well, boys, you know, that reminds me of something Ben Franklin once said. Oh, I know. And I'm pushing mom into the kitchen. Mom, 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 let me help you with the yams here. And I say, mom, uh, we have to stop with the Ben Franklin quote now. We have to stop. I know you think you know what it means, but it doesn't mean that. And she says, Stephen, I don't know what you're talking about. Ben Franklin was just saying that there are other fish in the sea. Life is short, and you can't let your heart be broken by one person. And I go, yeah, yeah, but that, that's not really what Ben Franklin was saying. Mom, what Ben Franklin was saying was that, um, is that a man doesn't need much to have a relationship with a woman. And mom looked blank, zip, nada. And I said, mom, what Ben Franklin was saying, I'm sure in jest, was that a man could have a perfectly fine time with a woman even in the dark with a basket over her head. <laughs> Suddenly, Mom goes, oh, no! <laughs> no, no, no! 
years of a mis- lifetime. A lifetime of misguided quotation was coming home to roost. No, 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 Stephen, no. I go, yes, mom, yes, but why, why? <laughs> why would Ben Franklin say something like that? <laughs> I said, I don't know, Mom, but we all knew what you mean. I think you could just lay it to rest. And then Mom goes, well, I heard he was always salty. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever that meant. We have Stephen Tobolowsky here. His new book is My Adventures with God. When did you actually develop a spiritual life of your own, not one that was imposed upon you by adults or, or that sort of thing? When did you have a moment where you said, okay, I as... As Stephen Tobolowsky, autonomous acting person, I'm starting to feel something. I think we all have a spiritual life that we recognize as different things throughout our life. I guess I came back to being traditionally Jewish when I got married and when we had children, and I came back to Judaism. And I'm thinking, like, I am this hep guy. I am driving an SUV in Los Angeles, driving over to the synagogue, reading the Torah, listening to uh, public radio, and they had... We support that part of the story. Yes, yes. 100%. And they had, like, saying that it is... uh, They did some sort of study that most men in their 40s drive SUVs, uh, return to their faith, and listen to public radio. And I realized... (laughs) I was just the average. So I'm thinking that everybody goes, and and certainly when you have children, you know that your spiritual life changes. And when you almost die, you know your spiritual life changes. And so during your life, I think in the Old Testament, in the Torah, as we called in Judaism, and Google me on this, because this is probably incorrect what I'm saying. Is, but there's like... Everybody in your car, pull over, and then Google Stephen Tobolowsky. Get somewhere safe. I think there are like something like 41 different names of God in the Old Testament. So the question is, which one do you see? And which one do you see at what time in your life? And, and what does that mean? And does it make you feel whole? This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We have Stephen Tobolowsky here. His new book is My Adventures with God. We have to take a very short break. We'll be back in just a moment. Special thanks this episode of Livewire to Lisa Newkirk from Denver, Colorado, and Christine and David Vernier of Portland, Oregon. Lisa, Christine, and David made the decision to support Livewire during our spring membership drive last year, which got us to this point. And we're hoping that all of you hearing me right now will follow their lead and sign up to donate to Livewire today. Again, one last time. You can donate over at livewireradio.org or use the link in the description of this podcast. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. My name is Luke Burbank. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, and we have Stephen Tobolowski here. His new book is My Adventures with God. You've seen him in many movies, TV shows. Um, I wanted to ask you about falling off a horse and breaking your neck in Iceland and having a miracle. I... uh broke my neck in uh, five places riding on a horse on an active volcano in Iceland. So like, as one does, what could possibly have gone wrong? And I come back to America and my doctor tells me I have a fatal injury, which is very depressing when you're alive and they, (laughs) 
they tell you this, it really brings you down. And, and then, I, I, first I thought it was terrible, then I thought it was funny, then I thought it was kind of inspiring, and I thought, well, what happened if what that doctor said was true, and I really did die on that mountain? What would I want my two boys to know about their dad? And so, as a form, I'm in, you know, I'm like this now, because I have the brace on my neck. And you could describe to the radio audience what I just he, did. As a professional actor, Stephen Tobolowski is reenacting a person with a very stiff neck with a yeah. brace on it. Yeah. That's right. And, and so... I felt the, it was like I was there with you. <laughs> if, with the neck injury. So, the one thing I could do was write. So I started writing these true stories that I wanted my boys to know about me, which eventually became this book. But I don't even feel like the miracle is how I survived. And in the story, there's a colossal list of circumstances that are just freaky as to why I wasn't killed. All sorts of things, but that wasn't the real miracle. One, one of the things I could do was read so I thought, what I'll do is I'll read a book that I never would have read in a million years, which would be the Talmud. And I took it outside, and I began looking at it, and it read very much like a book that was written 2,000 years ago in Aramaic. I couldn't make heads or tails of it. But after two weeks, I get to this section, and it was my life. And it said, sometimes, when we have suffered an injury, a loss, an illness, when we are in despair, this is not a curse, but could be a blessing, a divine blessing, to help you see the world with different eyes, to go to a different level of spiritual consciousness. And the name of this is the afflictions of love. And I'm thinking, my God, if such a thing were true, I wouldn't have to worry about how, what kind of shape I'm going to be in when they take this damn brace off because my affliction is going to be my blessing if such a thing were true. Oh, if only I could see the world with new eyes. And what happened was, not that I was alive was the miracle. Three months later, I'm sitting in my garden reading Glee. They send over a copy of Glee to me <laughs> saying, would you like to play Sandy Ryerson? And I'm still like this. And I happened to look at my yard from a different perspective, and my vision changes. And I realize I had never seen it this way before, and I changed. I see the world differently than I ever saw it before. And to me, I have no explanation for that. I, ha I cannot say, oh, it was just a coincidence of the way I landed on that lava flow in Iceland, or it was just happened to be the collusion of cervical vertebra that just saved my life. I, I can't say any of that. What happened to me was inexplicable. I have to only consider it a miracle. But, but it's not a miracle that isn't available to anyone. Uh, in my life, I always thought I needed either a telescope or a microscope to experience a miracle. And when this happened, I realized all I needed was a mirror, which, which was shocking to me. But I think it's available for everyone. Wow. That is but one of many fascinating insights and stories in Stephen Tobolowsky's new book, My Adventures with God, 
You can also see him on Silicon Valley and in so many other places. Thank you again. Stephen Tobolowski for being on Livewire. <laughs> Here's how one reviewer described our musical guest this hour. She sounds like the collected works of Rainier Maria Rilke, transmuted into the offspring of Nashville Skyline-era Dylan, with a little Zoe Deschanel thrown in. I'm going to be honest, I don't know what any of those words mean. <laughs> but I can say that Haley Hendricks has an arresting voice and a great sense for songwriting, and I know you're all going to love her. Her latest EP is called Fish Eyes. Please welcome Haley Hendricks to Livewire. If it's okay, I got really inspired by Stephen's talk that I want to sing my song about gardens, about starting a garden to try and have control of my life. But it requires backup singers, so I was going to ask the band if I could teach them a part real quick. At, are you guys okay with that? Haley teaching the band. Band, are you okay with that? Just some of my backup harmonies. So um, the, just the chorus is just um shalala a million times, but with harmonies it sounds really nice. So it's... Um shalala, um, um shalala. Um, shalala, um, um, shalala. It's just that a million times. Uh, but yeah. you guys want to try a it? A million times. Um, shalala, um, um, shalala. Um, shalala, um, um, shalala. Um, shalala, um. Then it goes down. Um, shalala, um, um, shalala. You guys can that one if you want. That's okay. But that sounds great. We'll figure it out. All right. This is definitely a first. And I love it. All right, Haley, what is the name of this song that we're going to hear? It's called Um Shalala. Oh. You're going with the direct approach on this one. All right. This is Haley Hendricks and the recently called into action Livewire House Band. On Livewire. Okay, here we go. Um, shalala, um, um, shalala. Um, shalala, um, um, shalala. is sour. I've barely been to college and I've been doubtful of all that I have dreamed of. The brink of my existence essentially is a comedy. The gap in my teeth and all that I can to the milk is sour Shalala, um, um, shalala Um, shalala, um, um, shalala is sour with olives on my thumbs And all that I've stuck to And all that I've clung to I fought like a dog This world that I have trusted Has been over and busted And rusted by an arbitrary sonogram Shalala I've barely been to college and I've been doubtful of all that I have dreamed of the brink of my existence essentially is a comedy the gap in my teeth and 
Well, my goodness, that about does it for our show. Let's tell you who helped make it all happen this week. Big thanks to our guests, the Minimalists, Ariel Levy, Stephen Tobolowski, and Haley Hendricks. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines and fully hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. Becky Fogel is our associate producer. Jason Rouse is our announcer. Caitlin Kunkel wrote for this show. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Ethan Fox Toker, and Jonathan Newsom. Molly Pettit is our technical director. D. Neil Blake does our house sound and recording. Big thanks to Carlson Audio. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Laura Harden is our marketing director. Tim Harkins is our operational manager. And additional funding is provided by the Oregon Arts Commission and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by support from our members. Special thanks this week to member Chris Bright of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show, head over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. R.I. Public Radio International.